In the Canadian justice system, animals' interests are rarely represented, but the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Pawn Order Podcast, and these are their stories. Welcome to Call and Order. I'm your host, Camille Lavchuk. Peter Sankoff is off this week, and my guest host today is Anna Pippis, my colleague. We've had a bit of an audio quality issue with this episode, so apologies for that, but we hope you enjoy. Welcome, Anna. Hi. For those of you who don't know, and I suspect a lot of you do, because I know a lot of you follow animal justice's work pretty closely, Anna is our director of Farm Animal Advocacy, so she focuses on all of our issues pertaining to fighting for farmed animals, which are the most abused and used group of animals in this country. Yep, that's right. And so uh, it's exciting to have you, Anna. This is the first time we've had any guest hosts whatsoever, so welcome. I know, this is fun. And Camille, I think it might be the first time we've ever recorded a podcast together in our many years of working together. I think you're right, which is kind of surprising, actually, considering I know, it's how weird. long it's been. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a funny, funny context to be chatting with you. <laughs> <laughs> so Anna and I, uh, we became friends in law school. Shout out to U of T Law. Woo-hoo. Yeah. And actually, it's funny. A lot of us went through U of T Law, like a ton of the animal justice gang that, that's involved these days. Like uh, we both did. Peter Sankoff was there. Um, you know, Katie Sykes was there. Uh, your husband Arden was there, who does a ton of work with us. Ben Oliphant was there, so it's been. And Angela Fernandez is there. It's been a really big focus yeah. point of animal law for a long time. Yeah, I think so. I wonder why. That's interesting. I've never really thought about that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know. Part of it maybe is because it's in Toronto. Like personally, when I was trying to decide what law school to go to, I wanted to be in Toronto because that's all the where all the animal rights groups were. So that was kind of mm. what tipped the balance for me. So. Maybe that was oh, the same for others. Yeah, cool. Yeah, no, not so much for me. I don't even, I, I, animal law was on my radar when I was thinking about going to law school, but I think, as you know, Camille, I I wasn't necessarily going to law school to be an animal lawyer. I was going to law school to get the ability to be able to make social change. So for me, it was just, U of T seemed like the best uh, option for that. Well, it worked out pretty well. I, I can tell everyone that we had a pretty fun time with our animal law club in law school. We did, yeah. One of the things that we did that was always that it'll, it'll always be my favorite was the Earthling screening that we hosted, which had like two hundred people at it, and I think so many people went vegan after that. I tell people about that all the time. <laughs> yeah, that was a really, really great. Um, well, we had Georges Laroque came down from Montreal to speak at it. Um, he was a former NHL defense. Pl- what is it called? Oh, my, my lack of I don't know. All the hockey gonna... <laughs> he was like a hockey player, right? Isn't that just the one thing? It was like hockey and yeah. Yeah, he played hockey, but he played like in a defensive position. So he's like this big, strong man. And he was like a big vegan animal rights activist. I feel like he's maybe not so vocal anymore. I don't know. But back in those days, he was kind of, you know, a big spokesperson for the movement. And he came down to help us introduce the film. So that was cool. Oh, I know what you're trying to say. You were trying to say that he was an enforcer and used to like beat up people on the ice. 
<laughs> yeah yeah that's what I meant to say yeah yeah, yeah that's what I said <laughs> yeah that, that was his job anyway so that was pretty cool we had some celeb power there and there were tons of people and I think that we uh, I think we succeeded in raising the profile of the issues on campus pretty well so yeah, yeah that was yeah that was fun back in our fun student days and uh then we've worked together pretty much ever since so after law school mm-hmm. we were all involved in Mercy for Animals for a number of years and then kind of all transitioned over to animal justice and now here we are yeah exactly yeah so Anna what have you been up to well um you mean like in the recent weeks or since (laughs) school because we could take it way back (laughs) well I was thinking about the recent weeks but I know you were in a veg fest recently in BC yeah, I went to Powell River, which is on the Sunshine Coast, but it's way up there in BC. So it's actually two ferries away from where I am. Uh, so way, way, way up, like only accessible by ferry as far as I know. No roads go there. And it's Powell River is a mill town. It's one of the biggest mills actually in the world. You know, BC is a big logging industry. Um, so there is like this big bustling mill town on the water there in Powell River. It's a working class town. So, you know, not necessarily a lot of hippies like me <laughs> who are already vegan, <laughs> but there's also a thriving vegan animal rights community there. And the, that thriving community put on Powell River's very first veg fest. And they really hustled to get people in the door I think they got 800 people out and it was unlike any other veg fest I've been to and you know I've been to a lot we've all been to a lot Um, this was really the first time that the people there really were not familiar with animal rights and veganism Um, they usually when you go to a veg fest it's like a happy reunion for the animal rights family and everyone already knows animal justice for the most part and people are buying animal rights merchandise but in this case it was really all about people exploring the food primarily and sort of learning about the issues but I think for the most part they were there really to learn it was a small town it was an exciting you know interesting thing to do on a Saturday to come and check out this big festival and they were really curious about the lifestyle so that was cool I was really amazed with all the work the organizing committee did to get this event off the ground and to get so many people through the doors to be exposed to the issues and I was able to present on um the topic that I typically talk about, which is uh, what we do to farmed animals, explaining to people what the issues are, and also how people can get involved in helping. And um, yeah, I think there were some people there who were definitely new to the issues and who had some really good questions and who were seeing for the first time that what we do to farmed animals is atrocious and that in many ways it's really a problem beyond repair. Wow, that's amazing to hear. I just love all these stories about small towns now that are having veg fests. Like, yeah, we, we actually keep track of all of them because Animal Justice has a table at like pretty much all of the veg fests this year. So I've got this big spreadsheet with all the veg fests, and there's like close to thirty veg fests across the country, twenty eighteen. Wow. And you know what's amazing. crazy? Ten years ago, I think the only one was Toronto Veg Fest. So in ten really? years, yeah, isn't that crazy? Wow. I don't remember that. I mean, I was in Toronto 10 years ago, and that's the one that I went. I was on the board of the TVA, actually, that puts on that veg fest. And in in fact, then our our big thing was getting it transitioned from a vegetarian festival to a vegan festival. (laughs) I and I were both on the board lobbying for that. Um, Yeah, but I think you're right, actually. It is... It is a really growing thing, huh? I never really thought about that. So incredible to see, especially these smaller towns, putting them on and really bringing the issues to a crowd that might not be more familiar with them. 
Yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool. We have a pretty jam-packed, well, I want to say summer, but it's actually just really throughout 2018. So we've got, well, mm-hmm. you're going to be at Veg Expo next weekend in Vancouver, which should be mm-hmm. huge. Yeah. And we've yeah, got Veg Expo. Ottawa coming up the weekend after that, Calgary a few weeks later. There's a Veggie Pride Parade this summer and just all kinds of other cities cool. this fall. So that's really cool. Yeah. Well, yeah, and other than the the veg fest, it's just um, you know the same old stuff. I typically my work for people who don't know focuses on exposing what's happening to farm animals and working on um, changes and enforcement in terms of actual animal protection laws. And then on the other side of things, it's the food policy stuff. So um, if you can't improve things for farmed animals, at least we can get people eating fewer of them, so that fewer of them suffer. So there's you know plenty plenty of opportunities for trying to help farmed animals through the law yeah definitely it's you know obviously just because of the numbers of animals involved and the sheer amount of suffering it's a huge area so looking forward to getting into that in our main segment um before Mm -hmm. we transition to that i guess there's a few other kind of cool things that have been happening lately well first of all we Mm. were in court last week in animal justice uh not in Mm -hmm. animal justice with animal justice in perth ontario (laughs) And, and I know that you know all about this case because your husband, Arden, was, was running the case for us as counsel on it. So Yeah, very really, exciting. Yeah, really fascinating case. And we've talked about this before on the podcast. We are going to do an in-depth episode on this at some point. Not today, but probably we'll wait till the, the decision comes out. But just a reminder, yeah. it's the Bogarts case, and it's the one where the whole animal protection system in Ontario is being challenged on a constitutional basis. So there's a claim by a public interest applicant that the whole system is too broad, the search powers are too broad, and more importantly, that police powers shouldn't be given to a private charity without any accountability mechanisms like police services legislation or freedom of information. So we were there in court. And we sort of supported that last position. We, we also agree that it's problematic for uh, the SPCA, a private charity, to enforce public laws because it's really just this area of animals that we still make that happen and that it's not a fully publicly funded government police agency. So the really cool thing, and I'm not sure if you already got a recap about this from Arden, but the really cool thing is I feel like us being in that courtroom totally changed the dynamic of the case. Like the other parties were all quoting from our submissions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think so. You know, usually when you're an intervener in the case, in a case, you um, you have an opportunity to sort of very, very mildly impact the case. I mean, normally there's the big case that's going on and you're there to say something that maybe, maybe not the judges kind of needed to hear. I really think that in this case, our involvement significantly changed the game. I think that without um, us there with the argument that we brought um, and in the way that we brought it, I think so well written and argued by Ben Oliphant and by Arden. Um, can I brag about my husband? Shout out to Arden. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> Um, that I think that they um, that they sort of blew this case up and also the attention that animal justice brought to the case giving it this significant public attention so it's getting you know serious discussion in the media and in the public that this is making the case you know into a really important case yeah definitely there was CBC coverage Ottawa Citizen it was all over the place and 
I think people now probably understand the issues. It's on their radar in a way it wasn't before. And the idea that we still let public laws be enforced by a private organization is just such an anachronism. So, right. Well, this has been something that we have long been frustrated by is that um, I think that the initial genesis of the OSPCA Act and the OSPCA enforcement powers was a good one, right? It was, okay, well, um, let's protect the animals by giving the job to people who care about animals, which seems like, just going back to a blank slate, it seems like, hey, how bad, <laughs> that's a great idea. Um, but. But that's actually not what we see in practice at all. There's a lot of problems with having the enforcement body be a private charity. Yeah, huge problems. And I am really looking forward to digging into some of those in a future episode because we made a lot of really important submissions about conflict of interest, about funding, about oversight that, yeah, we'll definitely get information. Yeah, we'll definitely get into all of those for you guys in a future episode. So so that was pretty cool. It was a fun case. And the judge said he'd rule at some point in the future. So a few weeks to a few yeah. months, usually the standard. We never really know. I think it'll be longer. I think there's a lot to grapple with. And it sounds like the judge was really thoughtful. And, you know, I'm hoping that uh, uh, many months to wait for the decision is going to be good news for us. Yeah. One of the other lawyers involved in the case, he was guessing six months. And I'm, I'm going to say mm-hmm. that's probably about right, given how big it is. Yeah. Yeah, and I know from clerking that judges try to get all their decisions out in six months. Now, they don't always achieve that, but that's kind of the standard. That's what they're expected to do. So six months seems about right to put it up <laughs> to the long end of what they're what's acceptable. Pushing the limit. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> so we keep you guys posted on that one. And really the other stuff happening at Animal Justice right now, the gala has been a really big focus of most of our team. So the tickets are mm-hmm. almost sold out. And if you're listening to this podcast uh, somewhat later in the week, uh, they may even be gone by then. So if you if you hear this right away and you want to go pick one up, visit animaljusticegala.ca and, and see if you're still in luck. We'd love to have you there. Mm-hmm. And, the and I'll ad- be there. Anna's going to be there. Yay! Anna's usually <laughs> Yay. in Vancouver, for anyone who doesn't know that. So it's kind of rare that the whole team gets together in Toronto. It happens maybe once or twice a year. So we're excited yeah. about that. At the, at the most, yeah. Very yeah. exciting. Yeah. And then the other cool thing that we have going on is a bunch of summer students who are joining us for a few months to help out on various projects. So we had Crystal start last week, and Alyssa started today. We've got Matt helping out and possibly another one too. So it's, it's kind of a busy beehive of activity over at Animal Justice. So fun times. Cool. Yeah. Okay. So before we get into the main segment, there's a few kind of interesting stories in the news over the last few weeks that I thought we could touch on. And mm-hmm. I'm going to start with two recent investigations out of Ontario, undercover investigations into animal use industries. And they got surprisingly little media coverage in a couple of cases. So why don't we talk about them? So the first one is uh, Last Chance for Animals did uh, a fairly extensive several months investigation into a fur farm called Millbank Fur Farm. And it actually resulted in 14 provincial charges in relation to the conditions that they witnessed that that mink were being subjected to. Uh, I don't know if you had a chance to watch the footage, Anna. It's pretty gruesome. Yeah, I did. Yep. The standard fur farm stuff. But yeah, terrible and amazing work by Last Chance for Animals to document that. Yeah, just incredible that they got all of it. So that's what they really had was like sort of a life cycle of a fur farm investigation. They had early stuff where the animals are being bred. They had stuff throughout the summer while they're being grown. And they even had the the most gruesome, most heartbreaking scenes uh, where the ones where they're, they're being killed. 
um, at the end and then skinned as well. So we're going to post a link to that in the show notes if you want to go see. Um, if you don't, I don't blame you because it's terrible. And if you already know how bad it is, don't torture yourself by looking at it. But yeah, um, yeah you know, the, the, the ending, the death was probably really uh, heartbreaking for most people. But the other thing that struck me, Anna, was just how miserable their lives were in between. So you saw them doing stereotypical mm -hmm. behaviors, these poor little minks. They're just pacing and running mm -hmm. around their cages in the same patterns. And there were also minks with just festering open wounds on their bodies that workers said they addressed with management. And management's like, yeah, don't worry about it. Yeah, this is always the thing that strikes me. I mean, I have sat through many, many hours of undercover footage, and this is always the thing that strikes me that I always try to sort of capture for people when I talk about these issues is that sometimes when there's just like a three-minute edit for the public, people think it's it's so dramatic and it's all this, ooh, you know, this terrible thing's happening. Oh, but it's just this one-off situation. But, but no, when you really see the footage and sort of sit with it and realize oh my gosh, this is their life, minute after minute, after hour after hour, after day after day after month, and you just really realize how utterly deprived they are and how their caregivers are just completely indifferent to that. Not because they're bad people, but that's the nature of an industry where you're using animals for some, you know, where you're commodifying them, where you're using them for some profit-based end. These are not members of the family. These are just means to an end. They're going to die soon, and you can't bring yourself to care about them. Who could care about them? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's, it must be really difficult to be a worker in that situation. I, I know some of those workers did have concern for, for the minks, but when you're part of this industry and the owner is telling you, well, don't bother, it's going to cost more in veterinary care to fix this animal than we would get for its pelt when we, when we kill her. Exactly. Then what's the point? Well, and the workers compartmentalize. Our brains are really powerful. And even undercover investigators that I've worked with have said, you know, it chills them the extent to which they just became desensitized to the issues so quickly. That's just a normal sort of psychological pathway in our brains to help us cope with trauma. Yeah, it's so true. I even find that in myself sometimes. And it's something I don't really like, but I, I watch footage Definitely. and I don't have the same emotional reaction that I would to the footage about 10 years ago before you get really inured to this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And definitely, you know, I know it's a coping mechanism um, and I still care about the issues, of course, but absolutely I can. Um, it's it's scary the way that you can watch it and just sort of watch it with a separate part of you that's not really registering it. Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, there's all these psychological studies about uh, that try to explain why people in times of horrific genocides and other terrible war situations can just commit atrocities and it, it really is right. you know it's accountable by those defense mechanisms in the human brain yeah exactly i always think about that the way that soldiers in war will dehumanize their victims and it's the same kind of thing it's sort of de-animalizing the victims um through no fault of their own yeah yeah no this, these industries are just awful for everybody involved the animals and the workers too so, mm -hmm. so that was horrible. I'm, I'm glad to see that there were charges laid, although it really surprised me that the um, Ontario SPCA didn't release the name of the firm when they put out a press release about the charges. They said they were keeping it confidential as per policy. So we know it was mm. Millbank Farm because of some other reporting on the issue and because I think Last Chance for Animals released that name themselves. But I'm just right. going to throw that out there. It's surprising to me that we wouldn't put a name on this farm. Uh, we know when cruelty charges are laid against individuals, their names are out there. 
Well, and that really brings it back to the Bogarts case that Animal Justice has been intervening on. Um, we should have more transparency, and they can just, as a private charity, they can come up with a policy that says we're not going to release the names of companies, and they can go ahead and do that because um, they're not accountable to the public. Just throwing that out there. <laughs> just saying. Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so another investigation that came out this week, or recently, uh, was one by Mercy for Animals into an Ontario hatchery. So I know, Anna, you reviewed this one in some detail because you commented on it for, for a news article from the National Observer. Uh, what did it find? Yeah, this was really standard hatchery stuff. So there were um, animals were hatching in the hat. For people who don't know, uh, hatcheries are part of the meat industry. Eggs are not hatching in nests on farms. They're hatching on trays and in incubators and in hatcheries. And from there, they're sorted and then um, boxed up and then sent to either the meat or the egg farm where they'll be living their lives. And so this was um, a Maple Lodge Farms owned. Maple Lodge Farms is a meat company. Um, and so at this hatchery, they still sort the chicks because they are they sort them into male and female uh, because at meat farms, they want all the birds to be a uniform size and the males grow a little bit faster than the females. So they still separate them out. So they're sort of flinging the animals around by their wings or body parts. And then the deformed animals are put into uh, a macerator and a macerator is like a large industrial machine that chops up the chicks alive. I liken it a little bit to a blender. It's sort of like that, like it just has blades, the chicks fall into it and then they're whirred up and you know, spun into their parts. It's pretty gruesome and a lot of people are, oh yeah, a lot of people are appalled when they find out about that. The industry says that it's the most efficient way of dealing with that. The problem of all these unwanted animals and unwanted animals are just, you know, a byproduct of just farming so many animals. And chickens, by far, are the number one animals that we're farming just because they're so small. So of the 800 million animals that we farm each year in Canada now, chickens, I think, account for, like, maybe 700 million of that. I, I'm, I don't have the exact numbers at my fingertips, but it's a lot. So that's what it was. It was really standard stuff. And, um, yeah, it, there no charges were filed because this kind of thing isn't considered to be illegal, although I think there's room for argument there. But, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And when there's no federal regulation of farmed animal industries, which we're going to get into in the main segment, you guys, don't yeah. worry. Um, that's, that's the kind of thing that the industry can get away with. Like maybe some enterprising prosecutor could bring charges in some situation and make the case that these practices are uh, unnecessary or not reasonable. Right. Um, but no one has done that, and it's difficult when there's no political will. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of stagnation in um, in animal farmed animal regulation and in the government ministry department that's responsible for it. Yeah. Well, we'll get into that in some more depth soon. So the last two stories that I want to talk about before we move to the main segment are both about horses. And one of them is uh, from, from the West Coast, Anna. There were two downed horses in Victoria. So Victoria has a horse carriage industry, which has been the subject of a pretty significant degree of controversy mm -hmm. recently. There's an active campaign there trying to shut it down. There's council candidates running on an anti-carriage platform. and. There was some pretty appalling uh, footage captured by, I think, the Victoria Horse uh, Alliance of two horses, forcible carriages, who actually fell down and were sort of sprawled out on the pavement and couldn't mm -hmm. get up. It was awful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just really brutal. Yeah. And 
and the operators are they went on this sort of PR offensive about it the horse carriage industry they're like oh it's not as bad as it looks you know the horses were actually just trained to stay on the ground and when it was safe and this bus that was behind them passed by then they knew it was okay to get up which strikes me as uh not really an accurate representation of what the video depicts. It does seem I'm to defy common video. sense. <laughs> yeah, you see these two horses like trying to get up, struggling, right. um, probably terrified because they're on a hard pavement and they've just fallen and they don't know what's going to happen to the next. And oh, the and they're so just... tangled up in all those harnesses and there's noise around them. I think they must be, as prey animals, I know they're, it's stressful for them to be in these kinds of environments that are so noisy and polluted. Yeah, horses, they have this natural response in the face of danger just to flee, just to get away mm-hmm. from there. And mm-hmm. they're trapped, like you said, under all of this gear and all of this equipment. So, mm-hmm. you know, eventually they were able to get up and then i'm sure they were probably forced to continue pulling carriages around for the rest of the day just mm-hmm. brutal yeah Ugh. anyway Very there's sad. there's movement there is movement against the horse carriage industry new york has already cracked down on it um, other places have done so too i think vancouver already has a ban on horse carriages and that's why you don't have any in vancouver we still have them actually yeah we have them in stanley park and even occasionally they rent them out for festivals in other parts of the city like recently in my own neighborhood they had the horses going around so i had to explain to my children you know they're like oh horses so you know so exciting and we we have to explain talk to them about why we don't agree with what's happening and yeah no it's happening everywhere and i still don't quite understand how that this has not already gone the way of the past i guess people just don't they don't think that they're suffering they think it seems normal i guess is that what's happening but to me it seems so obviously um problematic yeah i guess i just have a different vantage point yeah i think it's just been so normalized we're just so used to seeing them and uh i should have said montreal montreal is the one i'm thinking of where they're cracking right. down yes but, montreal the new mayor is good on that issue yeah yeah shout out to valerie plant she's kicking butt on animals and mm-hmm. um yeah it's so normalized but i think one thing that campaigns to end horse carriages have going for them is that at least we can see the horses we mm-hmm. can see them because they're in the streets and they're not behind the closed doors of bars, barns like so many animals, like chickens, for instance, or mates right. are. Right. Yeah, you can see them. They've got the blinders on. They're pulling that heavy, that those heavy carriages. They're working long hours in all weather. So I think it's visible to people once you point it out to them. You know, do you think the horses are happy being there? Um, I think people go, oh, oh, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, maybe they don't really love pulling around maybe they... in hot and cold weather. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, well, so then the other horse story is uh, even more heartbreaking than this last one. Uh, There were a number of horses killed in a fire over the long weekend at a really popular Toronto stable. It's called Sunnybrook Stables. And it seems like a lot of people I know on Facebook um, who have ridden horses have actually been there and were like really shocked and surprised to see this. But it seems like there were somewhere north of 20 horses kept there. And I think the reports are still coming in, but I've read that up to 13 of them or so died in um, a burn fire over the weekend, which is which is pretty sad. But what's interesting to me is a couple things. So I don't know if you know this, Anna, but this is getting huge play on Twitter, on social media. People are really upset about this. Mm. In uh, oh yeah, I see here sixteen horses. That that seems like a, the, the most recent number. You compare sixteen horses to thousands and thousands, sometimes over ten thousand animals like chickens 
who've died in other barn fires this winter, and the degree of outrage is quite different. Yes, this is always the way when dealing with animal rights issues or farmed animal issues. There's no, there's not a lot of logic to our response. People care deeply about horses. Many people have relationships with horses and, and dogs and cats. Um, we don't have the same response or relationships, I guess, with farmed animals. And I also think just generally it's hard to imagine large-scale suffering. This is true even with human issues when we think about millions of victims. It's really hard to sort of care more um, than if there were fewer victims. It's just sort of another one of these like psychological tricks. But yeah, it's very, um, it's interesting. I mean, of course it's tragic that these horses burned alive in this barn situation. But what people should know is that barn fires are actually very common in the animal agriculture industry. There are really virtually no fire standards. So these barns, and the barns are really fires waiting to happen. So hundreds of thousands of farmed animals in the last few years have burned alive in various barn fires throughout Canada. And yeah, the degree of outrage I think is is not proportionate. Yeah, this one city news story is so interesting to me, and I'll share it in the show notes if anyone wants to go read it, but you've actually got the news story naming the victims of this fire, the horses, by name. So Blossom, Phoenix, Downright, Carter, Sugar, Marty, Samson, Hercules, they give all these names of horses. So I think that really speaks to, to what you're saying, Anna, about how we connect with them as individuals and how we obviously care more when it's animals that we know by name and who have personalities and who are companions. Yeah, and, and sorry, go on. Oh, even the mayor, Mayor John Tory, is asked to comment, and he says he visited horses at the stables, and he's he's talked about this as well. So, like, his comments are in the story, and you know, I just just wish that the barn fires that kill thousands of farmed animals would attract that same degree of attention. Right, or um, or even just you know the slaughterhouses, because I th- one of the things that I find really interesting about doing animal work is that we humans have a tendency to grieve. We um, we have ceremonies for our lost loved ones, and we celebrate their bodies in death. And at the same time, we're killing and eating animals. So eating the body of a deceased is sort of like intention with this um, with this compulsion to grieve. And I do think it's really interesting that in death with the horses we want to name them that's part of our grieving and our mourning processes naming them and you know we may even see a funeral and the media may even cover the funeral as part of this public grieving process while at the same time with farmed animals we could never do that because what would that say about us eating their bodies eventually you know one of the greatest um sort of crimes many of us could imagine is if you were to lose, let's say a beloved companion animal, that would be absolutely heartbreaking. But if you then found out your companion animal was eaten, it would just really magnify the horror in your mind, right? Even though it's like following their death. It's just an interesting thing to think about the way that we think of of death for, for different animals in our lives. Yeah, the case really puts a lot of our own hypocrisies and cognitive biases and just weird psychological mechanisms on display. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, absolutely. And, well, the other thing I have to bring up, it, it doesn't say in the story, um, but I do wonder if there were sprinklers in these barns because apparently the fire was first reported by somebody who saw the smoke or saw the flames, but it doesn't appear to have come from a fire alarm, and there's no mention of sprinkler systems in any of these news stories. 
So there, that's... there probably weren't. Typically, barns don't have sprinklers or fire detection systems, so there's no smoke alarms or anything like that. And um, and industry will say that's because it's too challenging to put. Uh, water pipes into these drafty buildings that aren't insulated because they freeze in the winter and you know these are the issues with putting in sprinklers I mean of course it's doable if we cared enough we would make it happen but yeah typically barns do not have any sort of system like that and that's what and that really exacerbates the problem because the best way to deal with a fire is to put it out early and typically when a barn fire starts by the time anyone has gotten to it the building is engulfed in flames yeah, and by that point it's too late and it's too difficult to right. get the animals out and there's nowhere to take them even yeah. if you could get them out. Yep, exactly. Anyway, so very interesting, even in a case like this where it's our beloved companions, animals that people love and visit every day and, and ride, um, even in this case, potentially there were no sprinklers. So mm -hmm. we'll leave it yeah. at that. Okay, and now we're going to move into the main segment for today, which is all about farmed animals and the law, which, Anna, is a topic that you work on extensively. Mm-hmm. So, I'm just curious, like, how, why did you decide to make this issue the focus of your legal advocacy? Well, for me, it's really, um, it's numbers. I am a numbers person. I, uh, I, I went to law school because I was motivated to make change. I, so I, before I went to law school, I was working in social work, and I was very frustrated by how a lot of what I was dealing with was the results of bad laws and policies. And I thought we could really be preventing a lot of these problems just by having better laws um, and better policies for dealing with these things in the beginning before they become bigger problems. So I went to law school with a real desire to create social change, but not being um, necessarily knowing where I would do it. Now, I did know about the field of animal rights law and was intrigued by that. And actually, that was probably the thing that first piqued my attention in law school was hearing about some animal rights lawyers and just generally being a lifelong animal lover that really spoke to me and appealed to me. Um, but yeah, but I was open to to what I would do. Ultimately, the reason that I went into animal issues and specifically farmed animal issues is that, well, there's three reasons actually. It's because there are so many victims. So we farm now in Canada 800 million farmed animals each and every year. Compare that to the population of Canada, which is 35 million. We have 15 million cats and dogs in Canada. There's about 3 million animals on fur farms, 3 million, or 3 to 4 million, I think, actually, 3 million animals in labs. So really, 800 million, that's a huge number of animals. So there's a, a lot of potential to make a big impact, and that's what I wanted to do. I thought, I want to make the biggest impact do the most good that I can so that's one thing is just the numbers the other thing is the way that they're they're treated it's not just like a little bit bad and it's not once in a while it's like from birth until death their lives are real misery um, it's hard to exaggerate this area I don't know even the right words to use because it's just absolutely awful their lives are the worst so um, so again just lots of room for improvement lots of room for impact um, and then the third reason is that really, especially as compared to other issues, you know, human issues, environmental issues, issues that I was also very active on and continue to care about and be active on, um, the suffering of farmed animals is still sort of socially acceptable. So I, you know, I compare it to when I was working in social work and I was dealing with a 
a lot of really awful things happening to uh, women who had been victims of various forms of assault. And at the end of a particularly challenging shift, I would go to my, my loved ones and my families and everyone would agree this is absolutely terrible um, and they would you know, they would be there to support it. Certainly they wouldn't be participating in it. Whereas with animal issues, you can finish, you know, many hours of viewing footage or being active for animals in some way. And then at the end of that work, you can decompress and recuperate with loved ones and they can be, you know, actively participating in it and maybe even disagreeing with you and debating with you. So um, it makes for some there's a lot of room for improvement, let's just say. It, it, for me, it was a stark contrast. I mean, it was like, wow, this is like really dramatizing. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's just there's just so much room to improve our attitudes. We, we need to go a long way in towards even recognizing that this is a problem worthy of, of our consideration. Now, that's not to say that we've solved all human rights issues. Of course, we haven't. And there's a lot of room for improvement here in Canada and around the world for the human issues that face us. But when it comes to animal issues, you know, with human issues, we at least there's some agreement. We have the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. There's general social consensus that human rights matter. When it comes to animal issues, that's not the case. Now, that is increasingly changing, but by and large, um, you still need to even convince people that these are issues that are worth paying attention to. Yeah, the contrast is so interesting. And the mm -hmm. sort of the division of our own opinion about animal issues is strange, too, because we all so strongly agree, like if you do polls, and you ask people if animal cruelty is wrong, upwards of 95% of people will be outraged about animal cruelty. And if there's an individual video that comes out of somebody kicking a dog, people lose their collective minds, they go oh, crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Yet at the same time, you know, we all think of ourselves as compassionate people, but we hold these contradictory views where we think it's largely acceptable to continue to raise animals and confine them for food, um, even mm -hmm. if we don't think that we should be doing it under you know bad conditions and we want them to have better welfare. We still participate in the system that does not give them um, any real freedom or, or you know strong welfare measures whatsoever. Oh, absolutely. My first degree, as, as is yours, I think, is in psychology. And I spend a lot of time thinking about what is going on here. It's so interesting and frustrating. And um, <laughs> yeah, it's really, I mean, it's really strange. We are behaving in some very, very strange and confusing and confused ways when we, when it comes to animals. And certainly that's a lot of people's first psychological stop is, well, we can do we can consume animals people have been doing it for millennia and it's just whatever all the the defenses um but we need to do it humanely i think what a lot of people don't understand is that well this can't first of all this can't be done humanely it just can't you can't farm 800 million farmed animals every year and have it resemble anything other than a, a rapid paced conveyor belt where the animals are just widgets and there's a lot of sort of suffering as a, even if there's a margin of error of one percent that's still a huge amount of, of animals being sort of lost to this margin of error, uh, suffering in ways that are just totally unconscionable. Yeah, yeah, so true, so true. And, you know, I think the idea that we all like to think of ourselves as compassionate, and one thing I've noticed is that people just assume that because society is generally, you know, pretty compassionate, that we have okay laws and that animals uh -huh. are treated okay. And there's this like gap of information where they don't understand what's happening. And then if people do understand, they prefer to bury that and assume that the case is better than it is. And I know, I'm sure yeah. you know this as too, but one thing 
that always surprised, well, it even surprised me when I first realized this, and it wasn't something I, I picked up on immediately as a lawyer, but uh, you know, one of the huge areas that animal justice is about to work on is the fact that there's no federal regulations whatsoever that cover the lives of animals on farms. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are really surprised to learn this, and it really bears repeating. The federal government, or any government for that matter, is not regulating on-farm animal welfare conditions. Uh, the federal government regulates hatcheries, it regulates transportation, and it regulates slaughterhouses. This is primarily out of food safety concerns. Um, the provincial governments regulate general animal welfare, so every province, ha every province and territory has uh, an Animal Welfare Act, but they, these just apply to all animals, from cats and dogs to you know, chickens to orcas and everything, everything, and they're just general anti-distress provisions. But we do not have on farms fe federal or provincial laws that set out what you can and cannot do to animals or provide for an enforcement mechanism. What we do have instead is industry-led codes of practice that are um, that do set out what the sort of standards are. But these are not, first of all, they're not enforced. There's no enforcement mechanism, and you can't enforce a code of practice that's not government. These are industry codes of practice, so there's no legal ability to enforce something like that. Um, but even if you could, they're not enforceable. The language is very non-legal in nature. It, it says there's a lot of recommended this. Um, there are very few, so the industry, I think, is clever, right? I mean, they've delineated recommended best practices from required best practices. The required best practices are like, you know, you'd have to be a psychopath not to already be complete. It's like provide water. Well, like, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And then the re recommended best practices are all things that absolutely everyone sh should be doing. And it would be appalling if they weren't. Um, but because they're put there under recommended best practices, it makes it very challenging to say to draw a line in the sand and say this is required. And they also use somewhat vague language. So we're not typically seeing, okay, so let's say, for example, um, loading densities, just to take one of many examples. So when animals are loaded onto transport trucks, you could say don't crowd the animals. Or you could say you're allowed this many you know, kilograms of Mat of animal per this square meter of space. So you could set out a specific loading density. Everyone's on the same page. It's very enforceable. Um, it's clear, you know, whatever. This is what you want with laws, right? You want them to be predictable and transparent. Um, but, they, but they don't. There's a lot of just vague, vague, um, vague rule setting that just says, you know, sort of try to do it kind of like this, you know, no, provide sufficient food, um, you know, veterinary care, whatever, like it, everything is set out in this vague sort of non-enforceable way. And the industry well knows that these, they're called outcomes-based measures, are not enforceable. And in fact, this was the focus of my submission to the House of Commons Standing Committee on Animal Agriculture when they were revising the transport regulations was to say, because there's this movement to make things more outcomes-based and our contribution from animal justice on the legal side of things was to say was to explain what a disaster these outcomes-based measures are for for law enforcement and thus for animals 
Um, yeah. But I digress. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so the industry is not being regulated. Uh, this is a real problem because it means when there is no compliance with even these codes of practice, nobody from government is there to inspect to find out about it. We only see um, we only see things coming to light really when there is a whistleblower, like from a, an undercover investigation or something like that. But typically, any cruelty or neglect is only going to be witnessed by farm personnel, and they, of course, have a vested interest in not turning in themselves or their colleagues or their employers, um, or they're just not seeing it because they become immune to to even noticing these issues, as we were discussing earlier. And then, of course, there's no um, access to information about things. So, um, so because the industry is self-regulating, any industry about non-compliance is not subject to freedom of information law, so we can't find out about what's really going on. Yeah, it's pretty astounding. You've got like all these elements that kind of combine to make it this perfect storm where we can't effectively oversee animals. You've got zero mm -hmm. laws, first of all. You've got these private sort of standards that are set by the, the codes that Anna was talking about. And we'll get into those in a future episode if you want to know more about them. But look up National Farm Animal Care Council. That's an industry-led body with some government participation and some scientists on it that sets these codes, which are not law, but are, you know, sort of supposed to be the standard used. But of course, they're not enforceable. So, yeah, the enforcement has always struck me as, um, well, you know, apart from the codes just being not law in the first place, enforcement of even the few laws that do exist in slaughterhouses and transports as another area of huge deficiency. Right. And I think, um, yeah, it's worth, I think, maybe just mentioning as well, like, so the NFAC, the National Farm Animal Care Council, really touts the fact that it, it, it is, includes government, includes animal welfare representatives, and is a an evidence-based process. Well, I, there's a lot to parse there, because the animal welfare voice is a token voice. It's a consensus-based process, so they have to um, achieve consensus. So there, it's, there, there's a lot of um, pressure to conform. The NFAC won't allow any animal welfare voice that doesn't agree with the farming of animals in the first place, which is significant, which <laughs> eliminates a significant proportion of us. Not because I'm, you know, some radical who wants to end farming and whatever. Like, I, it's just like because from everything that I've all of the analyzing that I've done of this industry has led me to believe that when animals are used for profit, they will suffer. And in this day and age, when we have so much access to such a diversity of legumes and vegetables, it's like, why not just choose this option? So, I, But that precludes me from being able to participate in NFAC, even as an animal welfare voice. And then... Um, as for evidence-based, well, I've had the distinct pleasure of reading all of their scientific reports whenever they come out with a new code of practice, and they're not following the evidence a lot of the time. They summarize the evidence in the scientific codes of practice and the scientific reports, but they don't always put them in place in the actual codes of practice. There's a lot of practical considerations that are undermining the evidence. So we'll know, you, you know, we'll have a vast body of evidence that tells us that something is really terrible for animals, but it'll be per permitted in the codes of practice anyway. So I think it's really disingenuous for NFAC to be calling these evidence-based because they're simply not following the evidence a lot of the time. To the extent that they're evidence-based, they're just summarizing the evidence and then considering it and then disregarding it. If that's evidence-based, well, I don't know. I think, <laughs> I think we need to be calling it something else. 
Well, it's, it's essentially window washing. Like, my view is that they exist to protect the economic interests of the industry. They're not there for animals. It's not about animals. If it was about animals, it would be comprised of animal welfare organizations and industry would have a smaller voice. Well, right. And what they've done is what a lot of industries do when they want to avoid being regulated is they self-regulate. If you self-regulate, then government is unlikely to devote resources to stepping in and to regulating you. So what you do if you want to not be regulated is you set up your own regulatory body, you make it seem really good, and then you start, um, you know, having barbecues and breakfasts and lobbying meetings with government officials and getting them on your side. And better yet, if you can get them to fund you and endorse you, which is exactly what we see happening. So, um, yeah, it's a really sort of clever way of keeping the power in their own hands to set the tone and set the direction of what's happening and to set the expectations, to set the standards. It's, uh, it's creepy. It's extremely, extremely devious. And, you know, like you mm -hmm. say, they spend so much money. These industries are some of the richest industries on the planet. And mm -hmm. we all know what type of power the farmed animal industry has lobbying in this country. Um, I live in Ottawa, and I can tell you that they're on Parliament Hill every week, every, every month, day. certainly. Yeah. With yeah. all these industry breakfasts, they're out there. They yeah. have, um, you know, special influence in, in caucuses. They have many MPs who are supporting them. And the response from ministers, if you know, if you're an, an organization like Arizona and we ask ministers to do something to improve the law for animals, if you ask them about farmed animals federally, they say, oh, well, Canada has NFAC, which creates all these very strong yeah. laws, blah, blah, blah. And they like, you know, they try right. to make them sound like they are laws, which yeah, obviously they they're not, but it's given the government such a good scapegoat. Yeah, and, and just to touch on the other thing that you're saying there is that, which I think Bear is just kind of pointing out, is that the federal department like is a revolving door with the industry. So the um, the agriculture minister is a former farmer rep from a rural area. His chief of staff um, is like an heiress to a major egg company in Canada and even there were even complaints to the ethics commissioner about her involvement because it was like people were like oh that's like yeah. not <laughs> that seems wrong um and there was they you know there was some sort of requirement I forget exactly but that there was some sort of like firewall or whatever but you know I mean this is still we're just humans with conflicts and I think of all the um of all the federal departments and of all the ministers this is one that concerns me the most they simply do not even respond to some of our submissions yeah yeah and then, you know that really speaks to the inherent conflict not just at the ministerial level but also that's endemic in the canadian food inspection agency which does do the inspections and the law enforcement for um, transport situations and for slaughterhouses any kind laws do exist because of course they have this dual mandate mm-hmm there. Yeah, so it's, you know, we were talking about how there's no um, animal welfare regulations for on-farm, but that there are some for transportation and slaughterhouses. Um, it's funny because even when I when I say, can you believe there's no regulation of farms? It's like, well, when we do have regulations, they're still not really enforced, so it's not like it's much better. <laughs> At least we have something to work with, but um, it's not a vast improvement because then what we see is just terrible under-enforcement of the laws that do exist and a huge amount of suffering in contravention of, in contravention of existing laws. And um, law enforcement chalks it up to that margin of error. Well, you're dealing with all these animals in these terrible situations. They permit a huge... So um, I think... Oh, I, I wish I had the numbers at my fingertips. I think the CFIA ha has some sort of... Um, 
margin of error for its food safety things like they expect only 80 percent compliance with a lot of its food safety stuff not even just animal issues and um, another sort of number example is that if a load of you know batter spent hens battery hens uh egg laying hens when they go to slaughter after about a year and a half of laying eggs they're only about two years old by then they're completely depleted from all the egg laying and the horrible cage confinement and they're very frail and the cfia won't even inspect a load if um less than four percent so okay sorry let me say that in the reverse the cfia inspects loads if four percent or more of the load has died and sometimes it's like more than 50 percent of the load has died and then they'll inspect the load to see if there's any animal welfare violations but below that there's not even looking yeah so lots of problems yeah, yeah, and I think I, I'm saying all that because I think people say, oh, wow, the CFIA, we've got these like slaughterhouse, humane slaughter, they're called humane slaughter laws, uh, mm-hmm. and these transport laws, and it's like, it seems really good, like these are really good laws, and that's what I'd think too, if I was just reading the letter of the law, I'd think, oh, okay, well, sure, if this is the law, then... And that's fantastic, but, um, but what people need to understand is that this is not always being complied with. No, no, and the CFIA, I mean, I, I referred to this conflict a little bit earlier, but their inherent conflict is that they're charged with promoting the Canadian agriculture industry, so making sure it's profitable, opening market opportunities, helping this industry along, essentially corporate welfare. But at the same right. time, they've got this mandate of enforcing the laws against them. And you've got to think that that does something at a pretty fundamental level to their willingness and likelihood to apply those laws vigorously. Right. That's true. Yeah, that's agriculture and agri-food Canada it exists to promote agriculture. And it, the CFIA is housed within agriculture and agri-food Canada. And that's also the enforcement arm. And we their agriculture and agri-food Canada is doing some good work to promote Canada's enormous legumes and other plant protein uh, industries. But there's definitely a bias when it comes to, you know, they're trying to open market opportunities overseas for exporting animal foods. That's what they're doing. Sure. They're, uh, I mean, the minister's out there every week announcing new funding for new innovation in beef industries and egg industries and all of the industries that use animals. It's it's astounding. So Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, you know, I what I like about this conversation is I think we're sort of pointing to some of the structural issues that make it really difficult for animal lawyers like us to protect farmed animals using the law. Um, mm-hmm. But I want to make sure we go over some of the positives too. And I feel like these days the positive can be found in some of the really cool food policy work that you're doing and that's happening mm-hmm. across the country. So do you want to maybe talk about some of that? Yeah, sure. So I think I alluded to earlier that there is really two ways of helping farmed animals using the law or just generally and one is through the actual animal policies so things that are um, impacting animals whether it's um, you know better laws or better law enforcement or whatever getting people to care about animals in any way but then the other side of it is just you don't need people to care about animals to get them to eat more plants and eat fewer animal foods and there's a lot of really good reasons to eat fewer animal foods Canadians eat way too many animal foods anyway from a health point of view from a sustainability point of view so there's a lot of good reasons for people to start eating more legumes, more vegetables, more fruits, more whole grains, and to crowd out a lot of those animal foods. And that just has an indirect positive impact on animals because um, then they don't need to be farmed in these atrocious conditions for us. So I think that 
um, and and on that as well, and when in terms of the actual law side of things and the politics side of things, there's far less corruption from animal industries. Um, you know, when it comes to Health Canada, for example, they are really doing a much better job of following the science, following the evidence when it comes to health policy, and it's really clear. I mean, people whatever way you look at it whether it's epidemiology or population-based studies of longevity or you know individual research um, the science is clear people need to be eating a lot more plant-based foods and fewer animal foods uh, anybody that's disagreeing with that is looking at only a few studies and misreading them yeah that's my, the <laughs> that's my hot, hotly hot opinion there on the subject if anyone wants to debate um, yeah it's pretty but, hard to to ignore the overwhelming weight of the evidence on that issue it's just such right. an obvious obvious thing um let me let me ask right. you a question um so there's been interesting polling data coming out recently about the prevalence of people eating plants and going veg or or vegan or focusing on those foods more lately and I'm sure you've seen those polls but you know it's pretty astounding it's like was it 30 mm-hmm. or 40 percent of people under 35 are saying that they're eating that way or eating less meat or going veg yeah oh yeah and it depending on the region but I think in BC the numbers are like oh I wish I had. another number that I wish I had but yeah I think it's something like approaching half of young B- British Columbians like people under 35 are um, are vegetarian or trying to be more vegetarian and these numbers are really like however you phrase it and however you slice it the numbers are increasing rapidly and these this just really reflects what we see all around us there's a huge exploding interest in not necessarily going vegan but eating a lot more plant-based foods and an interest and a recognition that this is a good thing to do you know it wasn't that long ago that you had to convince people that you weren't going to die of a protein deficiency if you ate, you didn't eat meat three meals a day. And now I think there is a recognition and an understanding that eating meat three meals a day is a bad idea for your own health. People know that. So I think there is a lot. This is, um, I think, you, you know, like ironically what's really going to help us achieve um animal you know freedom animal peace animal liberation is people's um interest in their own health and um one thing that i have also observed is that i'm seeing this is true for polling data but also just for my own observation for example being at the powell river veg fest recently is that i think there's a lot of interest from boomers in avoiding lifestyle diseases maybe they're starting to feel the impacts of a bad diet or they're starting to see loved ones um, f- f- experience the impacts of a bad diet and they're starting to show a lot more interest in just eating well for their health and that's really dovetailing with the huge prevalence of information and products about eating a healthy plant-based diet so that ironically I think is going to be what helps us achieve a better world for animals um, and, you know, I think that when people aren't feeling well, it's hard to get them to care about any issues. When people are, aren't feeling well, their top priority is how they're feeling. And when you, when people are eating well and have more energy or, and are in a better mood, um, they're much more receptive to messages about doing the right thing and about, um, you know, living sort of in service to some greater good, which I think is important. Yeah, yeah, totally. Really important for happiness, I think, and fulfillment, too. And I also noticed that when people cut animal foods out of their diet, whether it's completely or just partially, they start to become more sensitive to the issues about animals, too, even if they're just doing totally. it for health reasons. They start to to learn more. And, you know, I think that 
if you if you have a large group of people in this country that are reducing animal consumption just for health reasons when they're also sensitized to the animal reasons you break down some of those barriers so like certainly the 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 lack of information barrier is being broken down and you might recruit these people as allies in the fight for stronger protections for animals oh absolutely and i think that just goes to the cognitive dissonance that we were mentioning before is that um, it's not that people don't care about animal issues it's that they're so deeply invested psychologically in defending them that they go to ridiculous lengths to see themselves in a consistent light um, which results in these strange sort of hypocritical um, you know things that people say and things that people do but but the reality is that I think that we've all seen this is that when people make a sort of a health dietary change and start eating more plant-based the blinders come off and they're able to sort of give their head a shake and wake up to the reality of what's happening to animals and then to allow themselves to care about it because they're it's no longer as scary to think their brains aren't going we can't care about this issue because then we're going to need to change our behavior three meals a day i can't do that yeah, yeah, it's so true. And, you know, one of these things that I think is going to have a, a big influence, like it probably already has had a big influence on the way people eat and think about food, is changes that you've been working on involving the, the Canada Food mm-hmm. Guide. Yeah, so this is really, really exciting and has the potential to impact a lot, to do a lot of good, to impact people's health for the better, to impact the environment for the better, um, and of course to impact um, the animals for the better. So, um, so Canada's Food Guide is in the midst of a major overhaul. It is going from the familiar um, the food groups, so people may know we had the meat and alternatives, the milk and alternatives, um, emphasis on alternatives. I just think it's really interesting that <laughs> we're, you know, alternatives is recognized as being sort of like the second best or that, well, this is what you do if you can't do the other one or something like that. But it's like the baseline is the meat and the baseline is the dairy, the cow's milk. Um, yeah. So these are really interesting the category names. Uh, but I digress. Yeah, you know, and then fruits and vegetables and whole grains or grains. Um, and yeah, interesting as well that fruits and vegetables are in one category. Anyway, so we're moving away from yeah. this. And this is something that we're seeing internationally is um, is forward thinking health um, agencies are recognizing, okay, people actually don't eat in categories. People eat meals and people don't um, eat half a cup of whatever. They eat like like on a plate, like they eat um, in a very different way than this kind of weighing and measuring and categorizing of things has led us to be eating. Well, and we also know that the food guide has failed us. Well, first of all, the food guide was created, the Canada's food guide was created at a time when people were malnourished. People were starving. People weren't getting enough calories. People weren't getting enough protein. Nowadays, people are getting too many calories and too much protein. So the food environment is significantly different. There's a lot of engineered processed food available, widely available. It's inexpensive. It's being well marketed. And so there, so we, we just sort of need a different approach to food policy that recognizes the changing food environment. So internationally. So what are what are the big changes that the guide is? Proposing? Yeah. So what's happening now is we're the, the big sort of overhaul, the facelift is that we're moving away from these food categories and we're going towards more eating guidelines and this is this is reflected in international trends so a, a good one for people to look at is Brazil and I know that Health Canada was greatly influenced by the food guide of Brazil which re- which just sort of generally um, sets out eating principles now what what they do in Brazil and in Canada now and in some of the other um, forward-thinking com- countries that are changing their food guides is they say eat a higher proportion of plant-based foods um, which is exactly what the evidence says and which makes 
<laughs> which makes perfect sense. So eating a higher proportion of plant-based foods is going to mean eating more of the good foods, the fiber-rich, mineral and vitamin-rich foods that are good for us, and also crowding out and eating fewer of the foods, um, the animal foods, the saturated fat-laden foods that are causing so many lifestyle diseases, heart disease, type 2 diabetes, certain kinds of cancer, um, obesity, the list goes on. So now what we're seeing, we don't exactly know what the, what the final language is going to be because Health Canada published a draft of its food guide um, for public comment and then the public did comment and now they're just sort of aggregating that information and then they'll put out the final version. Of course, the agriculture industry was absolutely furious and went to the wall with all kinds of tactics at committees and forcing various issues. They got Ag Canada to do their bidding to open up um, a study into this issue and to try to recommend essentially to trying to force Health Canada to have to figure to have to factor in the economics of the egg industry but anyway so what it will be recommended yeah, which is funny because this is you know this is not about economics this is about keeping people healthy and when you've got industry's interests right. playing a role in that process well then you're sacrificing people's health potentially. well exactly and I, I yeah it's frustrating because I feel like that's so obvious like of course we should be the food yeah. guide should be about people's health like it shouldn't be also factoring in the economic interests of the agriculture industry and it's like I mean it's also just misleading it's like well they're sort of like making it sound like oh all these like hard-working family farmers are going to be out of work and like no it's not like that like if people are eating more legumes like there's plenty of Canadian farmers making legumes and there's a lot of market opportunities for healthy plant-based foods even plant-based companies like um you know, there's like meat, plant-based meat and cheese companies that are Canadian Gardein and all these companies are started in Canada. There's a lot of innovation in Canada that can and should be supported. So it's just shifting industries. It's like when you shift from horse-drawn carriages to cars or from typewriters to computers, like it's not a net loss. It's just a shift and it's a necessary shift that needs to happen. And you can't sort of cling on to the old ways because of what I, I, whatever but so that's yeah. that's what they're saying um but I think it's yeah I think it's really unfair that that they would expect the government to make the food guide the health eating guidelines about the profits of some of these um some of these food companies um to mislead people into eating diets that are bad for them um just sort of to line the pockets of some of these food companies now maybe I'm not presenting that fairly but I do find it very frustrating that that's sort of their main point and that because they're so um they're so sort of well integrated in with these government officials that they're managing to get a seat at the table something that ridiculous and unfair just should never be you know should never see the light of day but it does it gets a lot of um it gets a lot of time yeah, and shout out to Health Canada, which has been refusing to have lobby meetings with the industry on the basis that it has no relevant information that informs their scientific analysis of what foods should be people should be eating. Yes. So hats off that to That was them. a big change this time. As they said, for, for once, we're not going to hear from uh, industry. Now, industry was permitted to provide their comments through the regular public consultation period. I, th I feel like that's an... Which is fair. Which is totally fair. And I feel like that's an important thing to point out because we've got some conservative MPs explain, you know, saying in the House of Commons and at committee that the industry wasn't allowed to voice its concerns at all. What if they had important things to share and these were going to be missed? And this is... A, and it's sort of like on this basis that they're trying to get this all revisited by the entire government. Um, but that's really not true at all. The industry was permitted to participate just like any other member of the public was. It just didn't get special treatment to lobby its interests, which 
is fair from our point of view because they still get their interests heard, but they don't have sort of a special opportunity to win over like on f- on, on an unfair basis um, these officials. So Health Canada stayed the course so far, and to the extent that they don't stay the course, it's because they're going to be forced by uh, the rest of the government um, because of animal egg lobbying. Yeah, so we'll be watching really closely to see what happens. Do you have any idea, Anna, when the final recommendations are going to be? Yeah, it's supposed to be sometime this year. So um, I think it's actually going to be soon. I think we're expecting it probably in the next few months, but certainly by the end of 2018. Wow, this is exciting. Yeah, so, you know, it's really cool. There's there's two main branches here. I think we're making progress in raising the profile of farmed animal issues. Right. uh, also, huge gains to be made on the policy side of things and just promoting plant-based eating, which saves people's, you know, saves years of lives on people's own lives. It saves the environment and, of course, animals. Right, exactly. And Health Canada is such a giant and the food guide is so, so, so important that once we have a food guide that acknowledges the, the importance of a predominantly plant-based diet, we'll be able to use that for other um, food policy you know, initiatives and campaigns. So um, getting, you know, all, mun- you know, people can go to their municipality, for example, there's a million examples, but people could go to their municipality and try to get them to require all municipal food stands, like um, like here in Vancouver, we have um, like burger stands on the beach. We could require them all to have like a healthy plant-based option or two. Um, we could get municipalities to declare meatless Mondays. Um, we could get them to require all catered, uh, p- political lunches to be plant-based just to set a good example I mean there's a lot of ways that we can use that food guide to say okay writing's on the wall here's what we need to do there's a big gap between what we know we should be doing and what we are doing okay you know governments like what can municipal and provincial governments what can we do to to um, to make changes on our end so a lot of exciting opportunities yeah. Yeah, and those, to be clear, those are things that are happening around the world right now. There's Meatless yes. Monday campaigns going on. There's there's governments that are introducing plant-based options at all of their facilities. Uh-huh. And I think in Germany, was it? am I right about this? The German government decided that most of its events or all of its events, yeah. events with the internal party mechanism are going to just be plant-based by yep. default to protect the environment. Exactly. So this is not like some kind of outlier thing. This is a global Oh, yeah. Trend. Every example that I cited was an example that I was thinking of that has actually happened in another part of the world so this is not just me sort of like firing off pie in the sky ideas these are actual examples from um, around the world that people are doing and um, yeah I think we really need to get caught up there too yeah yeah no the trend is unstoppable well thank you for sharing all of this with us I'm, I'm sure we'll have you back on to, to revisit these issues again because they are ever so quickly evolving. yes absolutely yeah no my pleasure I'll rant anytime <laughs> Heroes and Zeros. Okay, now it's time for, and Peter would be glad to hear me say this, everyone's favorite segment, (laughs) Heroes and Zeros. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so um, our Heroes and Zeros this week have a bit of a theme. Why don't we start with the um, the hero for the week? Anna, have you read this article about the Whale Sanctuary Project? They have narrowed down two sites these final two contenders for their site for the first ever major whale sanctuary in the world down to Washington state or Nova Scotia. So it's kind of a contest between these two places right Mm -hmm. now. So pretty exciting stuff. Yeah, really exciting. It's definitely the future. I think the writing is definitely on the wall there. It's just a matter of time. 
Yeah, so hats off to these guys. I know they've been working for uh, over two years just to get to this stage of getting local community buy-in, of getting uh, the regulatory approvals and understanding what they might need to do to build such a, a massive mm-hmm. undertaking. And they're saying that they've got uh, a couple great communities that they're looking at. They haven't released the names yet, but where people are really, really excited about having this type of project there. And, you know, why wouldn't they be? Because it's such an amazing ecotourism opportunity. Like, can you imagine what kind of tourist draw you can get if you're the town that's able to say, yeah, we've got the first sanctuary in the world where you've got orcas swimming free in this, uh, you know, beautiful enclosed coast. Oh, exactly. And whale watching is already such a huge industry. People are so fascinated by seeing these animals in their natural habitats. Um, I totally agree. And it just it's just goes to what we were saying earlier when we're talking about when people sort of say these protectionist lines about, well, what about jobs? and sort of to cling on to these archaic industries. Yeah, we create new, more modern jobs. And that's exactly what happens with these kinds of whale sanctuaries. Forget the old fashioned um, aquarium style of thing with performances and tanks. And people don't want to see that anymore. People want to see, people want to see the natural ecosystems and these animals swimming free and majestic in their natural habitat, not doing stupid tricks. That's true. And you know, what's really cool is that's not just us saying that we think that's what people want, but there's actually a new poll that just came out from the Angus Reid Institute on the issue of whale and dolphin captivity. So, you know, we've, we've all thought for quite some time based on, um, you know, our own observations that people are really like turning against whale and dolphin captivity. Mm -hmm. And that's why we've seen laws passed in Ontario banning orcas and tanks and why we've seen this federal bill, why we've seen the Vancouver Aquarium commit to no longer having these Mm -hmm. animals. And now this new study from Angus Reid finds uh, that we've got some support for this. So about half of people, it's it's amazing actually, about half of people, so 47% of people say keeping cetaceans in captivity should be outright banned. So no nuance about the issue, bring home a ban. And uh, only 21% of people think it should be explicitly allowed. So that's over twice as many people think it should be banned as people who think it should still be okay. And the rest, there's always people who don't have an opinion. They don't know. It's a gray area for them. Yeah, they're not sure. Well, and even just contextually, it's really interesting that Angus Reid, such a prominent polling firm, is putting, is conducting, they conduct this study, I think, on their own and put it out as their own press release. So it's, they're also recognizing that this is an interesting type of poll that people, you know, it shows that this is a topical conversation, topical issue. Um, And although, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about farmed animal issues and their importance, I think that all animal issues matter to some degree because they just reflect our evolving attitudes. So I think even just recognizing, hey, people want to see orcas swimming free um, helps people to understand our role in the ecosystems that we're not above nature, that we need to be respectful and mindful of all animals. And that is those kinds of shifting attitudes are going to extend to all animals, including farmed animals. So I think these kinds of issues are really important still. Yeah, yeah, it's a really good way to get our, our foot in the door and, and convince people to, to care about more animals. Once they're sensitive to one group of animals, that compassion spreads. Um, also, really interesting, and this is sort of a good segue into our zero of the week. So in Ontario, which has marine land, residents are more than three times as likely to say that uh, captivity should be banned. So that's 54.4% rather than only 15% of people who think it should be allowed. Wow. So interesting <laughs> transitioning. <laughs> yeah. Very, like not surprising to be honest, given the reputation of Marine land right, right now. Totally. Um, but Anna, is it a surprise to you to hear that Marine land is our zero this week? Oh my gosh. No, this has to be the first time that they've made anyone zero list. 
I'm shocked. Shocked. <laughs> shocking. Yeah. Shocking. No, I don't. I can't so imagine it would a few be reasons. possible to have a worse reputation than Marineland, honestly. Yeah, yeah. No, honestly, it's like, it's so true. So they're, they've been in the news for a couple reasons this week, and they all kind of combine to merit the Zero Award. Uh, the first thing is that Marineland has now registered under the Federal Register of Lobbyists to lobby against the uh, the bills in Parliament that would enact full or partial bans on keeping whales and dolphins in captivity. So that's interesting because previously, Green Party leader Elizabeth May actually filed a complaint about Marineland and the Vancouver Aquarium, um, alleging that perhaps they were engaged in unregistered lobbying, which is not allowed. Mm-hmm. So interesting that they've now put their names out there and they're doing this out in the yeah, open. Yeah. So that's one. Oh, and good that's on Elizabeth one. May on forcing them to do that. Yeah, and so far as we know, there's an investigation open still with the lobbying commissioner. They're not commenting on it because it's open, but we'll be following that, of course, and letting you guys know where it goes. And the other thing that happened is that there was a massive opening weekend protest at Marineland. There's one of these every May long weekend because that's when they always open. And I saw some pictures on social media. There's some Instagram stories. Um, It was huge. Mm. There were tons of people there. And Anna, this has been going on for, you know... Um, you know, six, seven years that we've had these massive opening day protests and closing day protests as well. Mm-hmm. So if anything, I, you know, I would say the issue is definitely not going away, but uh, reaching new heights, yeah. particularly with all these federal uh, legislative initiatives. Right. Yeah. And I think sort of like with the horse-drawn carriage issue, sometimes it's tricky because these industries cater to tourists. And that's certainly true of Marineland. I don't, I don't think there's a ton of regional support although I could be wrong, but I think it's um, it's a lot of buses of tourists and people not from the area who just aren't really as familiar with the issues, which always makes things a bit more challenging because then you're dealing with tourist dollars and different sort of like, um, you know, different considerations. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, more and more people are just, um, are just coming out in huge numbers to protest it. And when you get those kinds of huge numbers at protests, uh, it makes it a, a political issue that can't be ignored. It makes it an issue that's covered by the media that people are talking about. So it really changes the scope of an issue from just sort of a fringe issue that a few people care about to a real topical conversation, which is exactly what we're seeing, which is why Angus Reid is putting out these polls. Totally, totally. This has entered the national dialogue. And I don't know if we've talked about this before on the show. Maybe we have. But there's also going to be a Nature of Things documentary produced about this very issue, whale and dolphin captivity. Wow that they're working on right now. I think they were filming actually at the opening day protest, oh, but you know, if, if you thought it was on the radar before, this is, you know, having something on the nature of things makes it that much more prominent. So pretty cool. Yeah, and these sorts of documentaries have a huge potential to create change. I mean, I, I can't think of anything actually that has galvanized more change than documentaries. The right documentary at the right time is just so powerful. Blackfish was one in this area, but other documentary, you know, Earthlings, Food Inc., all these documentaries get people talking about the issues. Yeah, totally. And so last thing on Marineland, I just have to say, I'm going to post the link to this. They released a pretty hilarious blog, in my view, <laughs> uh, complaining about, you know, <laughs> okay, they go, it's, it's too funny to say without laughing. So they complain that they are being bullied 
by activists. They're like, oh, the the truth about the situation is that we're being bullied. It's exactly the same with Vancouver Aquarium, although they have a more polished professional veneer, but it's the same thing. They complain about these activists who are really exercising their charter-protected rights to free expression, and oh, they're bullying, and they don't have jobs. Not true. I mean, what all these things that they say. Meanwhile, they're the ones who are misusing the court system to try to silence people. It's just totally backwards. Yeah, yeah, it really is amazing. But, you know, I, I, the litigiousness, I think, is a sign of a dying industry. They know the writing is on the wall. They, I think, have read this poll, and they know that people no yeah. longer support keeping whales and dolphins in tanks. Yeah. So, uh, it, you know, ultimately, it's a positive sign. Yeah, yeah well, I totally agree. And, um, you know, it's that victim mentality also. I mean, if they were saying, okay, we sort of, we see where you're coming from, we disagree, let's agree to disagree kind of thing, um, we'd be dealing with a whole different beast. But the fact is, they're kind of like impetuous children who um, who just refuse to engage <laughs> in like a re- reasonable debate with on the issue. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, so that's it. Zero Marineland and uh, Hero is the Whale Sanctuary Fantastic. Project. Stark contrast. <laughs> <laughs> okay, everyone. Well, that's our episode for this week. It was great to have you here, Anna. Hopefully, you'll be back again I soon. I hope so. And uh, look forward to talking to you guys again before too long. Okay. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye. We'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in. Please, a reminder, you can subscribe to the Paw and Order podcast using iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcatcher. And please, please leave us a rating and a review, which helps us reach more people. You can also share the podcast so that others have the opportunity to listen to it. And we always welcome donations to Animal Justice, which makes Paw and Order possible. You can find me on Twitter at, at Peter Sankoff, on Facebook at uh, Professor Sankoff, and at my website, petersankoff.com. And you can find me online on Twitter at, at Camille Lavchuk, same handle on Instagram. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics. And finally, thank you so much to our producer, Shannon Milling. See you next time on Order.